Hey everyone, welcome to Philosophy for the Vulgar. This is Ami Palmer. I teach philosophy at Ohio Northern University. Um, Aaron, what have you been thinking about lately? I've actually been thinking a lot about uh, Edmund Burke. I've been really interested in how much wisdom there is in conservative thinking in general, because I, I typically think of myself in the U.S. political context not as a conservative. So I've been you know, thinking about what conservatives are saying. Do they have any wisdom? And I've been thinking a lot about Edmund Burke in particular. And uh, yeah, I'm Aaron Yarmel, and I'm PhD candidate in philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the founding director of Madison Public Philosophy. What have you been thinking about, Ami? So I've been thinking a lot about how people make con comparisons and how they do it poorly. So let, let me give you an example. So I want to focus on two common wrong ways of making comparisons that I see very frequently in the context of political policy debates, especially things that get sucked into the culture wars. Okay, good. This is going to be exciting. Tell me about it. So the first was what I call the apples to oranges comparison, um, where you're not comparing like things. Okay. And so when we're making comparisons, it's really important that we are comparing across the same dimension. And so what I see very frequently in, especially online political, I'll call it debate very loosely, <laughs> is, you know, let's say the Democrats propose one policy and they'll say, look at all the benefits that it will bring. And then somebody who leans conservative will respond or a conservative news outlet will say, look at all the costs or the, the downside of this policy. It's horrible. Right. Well, the problem is you're not comparing apples to apples. You're comparing benefits to costs. What you need to do when you compare po policies is you have to look at net benefits to net benefits or benefits to benefits, cost to costs. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I like that. So is there like an example that makes this really salient? Okay, sure. Uh, let's let's talk about the recent round of funding for COVID-19. Okay. So what you'll see is Democrats will say, well, look at all the people it's going to help. Mm -hmm. And then somebody in the comment section will say, yeah, but look how much it's going to cost or look at all the, all the uh, waste. You're not comparing the same things. Right. So we always, when we do comparisons, we need to figure out what we're comparing to. So in this case, we need to compare the net benefits of the policy compared to the net benefits of no policy. That makes sense. Yeah. And we do this in like personal decisions too. I was thinking about just when we were saying that, I was thinking about the decision to take the COVID 19 vaccine. Yeah. So, yeah, let's with the vaccine issue. You don't want to just say, here are the benefits of taking the vaccine. Yeah. And then someone says, so here are all the benefits, therefore you should take it. Someone else says, here are all the risks, therefore you shouldn't take it. That's the wrong way to go about it. What you need to say is here are the net benefits, meaning the benefits minus the costs of taking the vaccine. And here are the net benefits of not taking the vaccine, meaning the benefits minus the costs. Or we can say, here are the benefits of taking it. Here are the benefits of not taking it. 
here are the costs of taking it, here are the costs of not taking it. Right. But whatever you do, when you make a comparison, you have to be comparing the same two things. We see this throughout the political spectrum. Take gun control. Yeah. Um, one com- I mean, I'll set aside the Second Amendment arguments for, for no gun control. But one thing that I'll hear gun advocates say is, let's compare the benefit of being able to defend yourself with a gun against the cost of having your gun taken away. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, that's not right. We need to be comparing the full benefits of the new proposed legislation. What are the effects of this legislation going to be on street violence, for example? Um, And I see the- domestic violence. Exactly, yeah, or suicide. Cool, yeah, I like that move. Yeah, so now here's a subspecies of the same problem that is um, especially prevalent in political debate. So what people will do, so you'll see this like people who are on the far left, and as people on the far right will engage in this, they will compare an idealized, like a utopian vision of their policy versus the real world version of an existing policy, Mm. right? So they're comparing in fancy philosophy talk, like ideal theory to non-ideal theory. What that means is just like everyday language. It means like, so someone says, so they, they look at, you know, the existing capitalist system and they say, well, in a, in a perfect communist utopia, all these problems would go away. And then and on the same, <laughs> well, you can't compare what would happen in your idealized society where we actually don't even really know what's going to actually happen to, the, to a real world policy where we can actually measure currently the effects of that policy. And on the, on the right-hand side, like libertarians will make the same mistake. So libertarians will say like, well, in a libertarian utopia, we, all these problems will disappear. And then they compare it to an existing policy where we can actually measure uh, the consequences of that policy. Where you're, you, you can't compare real world to your utopian idealization of what's going to happen. You, yeah. you, what you want to do is you want to c- compare utopia to utopia or real world policy to real world policy. Otherwise, it's, it's not a good comparison. Yeah, I love that. This is something that personally has bothered me for years because I used to, I, I, would, I would hear my libertarian friends describe a li- libertarian capitalist society. I'd be like, that sounds fantastic. And then they would compare it to the Soviet Union. I'm like, yeah, obviously this sounds, this sounds, sounds much better. Then I hear my communist or my socialist friends the exact same thing. They'll describe a socialist ideal where... You know, we've gone through capitalism, you've had the proletariat seize the means of production, and it's this beautiful, wonderful uh, situation. That sounds fantastic either. Also, and I was like, well, where do I stand? All these things sound great. And I think there's actually a third level too. So there's like manifestations, then there's the ideal, the political ideal, and there's also political orientation, which is like, if I have a capitalist political orientation, the, the policies I'm going to endorse are going to be ones that give us more private ownership over over goods. And if I have a socialist orientation, I'm going to have an orientation towards promoting policies that promote more collective control over important social goods. And so it seems like we got to keep all three of those things distinct, your manifestations, your ideals, and your orientations. Yeah, great. Okay, people. Now you know. Watch out for these illicit comparisons and don't make them yourself. Yeah. Nice. Uh, let's let's uh, move on to the next section. 
Okay, Aaron, uh, you've been thinking about conservatism, which is traditionally associated with Edmund Burke. Could you give us a summary of conservatism and how it, and Edmund Burke's uh, version of it and where it comes from and why it might be of value to someone today? Yeah, cool. So I hope I don't get canceled for uh, for, for saying this, but I, I, <laughs> I think that there is some value in a conservative way of uh, thinking about issues. I'm not saying that it's always the right way, but I am saying that it's it's a useful perspective to adopt in some cases. And what I mean by a conservative perspective, roughly, is that you want to preserve what has worked. Um, in some cases, we think of this as protecting the true, the good, and the beautiful. But another way of thinking about it is like, imagine that you have a house. And uh, I know you've done some some house construction work. I've done some, some work on my house too. But a lot of people are into open concepts right now. They want to like knock down walls and have open concepts in their houses. But when you do that, you got to make sure you're not knocking down a load-bearing wall. Because if you do that, you have some serious problems. And the same is true of social institutions. A lot of our social institutions are load-bearing social institutions. They're doing some important work for maintaining society, for creating the sorts of worlds that can allow us to pursue collective projects that persist over time. And so when we sort of go around and whenever it occurs to us that there's a problem with a social institution, we just knock it down. That's kind of analogous to just knocking down walls haphazardly without first checking to make sure that they're not load-bearing walls. And so that's where I take the wisdom of the conservative approach to be. This idea that we need to be careful before we knock down a social institution to make sure first that it's not load-bearing. And so I'll just start with that. Do you have any kind of reflections on that general way of thinking about conservatism? Yeah, I think there's a charitable way to think about conservatism. And there's a, a way in which conservative actually manifests sometimes that is just um, not a, a very good way of approaching the world. So like the not good way is um, a rigid adherence to the past just because it's part of the past. Um, it's, it's an, un, yeah, an unthinking adherence to past ways of doing things. And it may be like a fetishization of the past. Um, now, I like to think of conservatism, you know, in, in a charitable light, you know, akin to like a, what we think about as like selection in the evolutionary process. The fact that certain traits get selected for and preserve over time tells us that they are of some fitness value to the organism. Now we could get into like how well that analogy works and like what what normative things we should build into fitness in the analogy. By normative, I just mean like value, like goodness and badness, rightness and wrongness. But I think it's a useful way to think about conservatism that way. Yeah, I love it. And I want to throw in a quote from Edmund Burke where he says basically that. So he says, a state without the means of some change is without the means of its conservation. Without such means, it might even risk the loss of that part of the constitution, which it wished the most religiously to preserve. The two principles of conservation and correction operated strongly at the two critical periods of restoration and revolution when England found itself without a king. So I think that the charitable thing is that it selects for 
the valuable things that are useful. Um, and that's sort of the conservative impulse. But the intelligent conservatives realize that we also need to be constantly looking for correction, for fixing the things that aren't working. And I agree with um, politicization, it's a real problem. I think that one of the main, like if we're gonna have a conversation about conservatism, we need to say at the beginning that one of the driving forces of fighting against marriage equality has been exactly the sort of conservative impulse that sometimes leads to positive things, but in that case, it led to something negative. This fetishization of the past. Yeah, let me just add this too, because I've been thinking about uh, something related to this uh, in a different context, in the context of healthcare. So I've been thinking a lot about the interactive relationships between what I call like micro care ecologies within a healthcare system. So there's an inter interdependence uh, between the different subspecialties in medicine or like within a hospital with between, you know, the social worker, the cardiologist, psych care, nursing, there are interactions between these different systems. And so the, the systems are really complex. And so you can't really predict how changing one, one subsystem is going to affect the interactions with the other systems. And I think like this is the this is like the the correct reading of what Burke is saying is that look, we have these various systems and norms and practices and laws and institutions that are all interrelated in complex ways. And so if you want to just like come in and just say, I don't like the way this specific system works or this specific institution works, and you want to just like yank it. Well, you don't know what the downstream interactive effects are going to be. You might actually end up causing more downstream harm than the good that you bring about by eliminating eliminating the institution. And really, I think like the right way to think about it is a, a um, like an argument about complexity and the limits of human reasoning. Yeah, I, I love that. Just to throw another Burke quote that I think speaks directly to that. He says. It is with infinite caution that any man ought to venture upon pulling down an edifice which has answered in any tolerable degree for ages the common purposes of society, or on building it up again without having models and patterns of approved utility before his eyes. And I think this is a good point. I don't know, it's sort of a good place to articulate why Burke is seen as an anti-Enlightenment figure. Yeah. So like in the Enlightenment, there was this appreciation for the abilities of human reason to be able to inquire deeply and facts not feelings yeah what was it facts not feelings facts not feelings yeah there was this, there was this appreciation for the power of the immense power of human reason and human rationality to to pursue inquiry and to try to work on these collective problems of political organization burke comes along and says no you're not capable of that the science of constructing a commonwealth or renovating it or reforming it is like every other experimental science not to be taught a priori. And even going on, when I hear the simplicity of contrivance aimed at and boasted of in any new political constitutions, I'm at no loss to decide that these artificers are grossly ignorant of their trade or totally negligent of their duty. So yeah, he, he, th he was very pessimistic about our ability to actually reason our way towards new and better solutions for the problems of political organizing. Okay, so there's this other uh, criticism that Burke has of pure reason. Um, so he's criticizing the Enlightenment project that, you know, humans through pure exercise of reason can discover the right way to set up society. 
So on the scheme of this barbarous philosophy, which is the offspring of cold hearts and muddy understandings, and which is as void of solid wisdom as it is destitute of all taste and elegance, laws are supported only by their own terrors and by the concern which each individual may find in them from his own private speculations or can spare to them from his own private interests. In the groves of their academy, at the end of every vista, you see nothing but the gallows. Nothing is left which engages the affections on the part of the commonwealth. On the principles of this mechanic philosophy, our institutions can never be embodied, if I may use the expression, in persons, so as to create in us love, veneration, admiration, or attachment. So the idea is that just like cold reason alone and positive law isn't sufficient for a society. You need, you need, uh, you need norms, you need virtue, and you need sentiment. Hmm. Um, just pure self-interest or um, what is often called in political philosophy, like just modus vivendi, just like purely instrumental um, reasons for living together, like an, uh, just a group of individuals, um, isn't sufficient for the proper governance of a nation. Yeah. And we can, maybe we can talk about some of the institutions that he thought you needed. One thing he, did, he thought you needed was the church. This, this excerpt comes from a place where he's talking about the value of the church and particularly the fact that there's no separation between church and state. The the church in England and I think in uh, in pre-revolutionary France would create a greater sense of importance for the monarchy. Mm -hmm. Like if, if if when you're serving the monarchy, you're serving God, and if all of your religious sentiments can be activated when you're thinking about your your obligations to your government, that's a much stronger motivation and a source of love and, and sort of inspiration for love than simply your, your, your self-interest or the cold light of reason. And so when we're thinking about these load-bearing walls, I, I, I like going back to this, this image. The church is a major load-bearing wall. Yeah. And, the, and the, the, the lack of a separation, the connection between church and state is a huge load-bearing wall, according to Burke, in the maintenance of these feelings of duty towards country. Yeah, and also like, if the legitimacy of the government um, comes through God, it solves one of the most important political philosophy problems, which is why should I follow the rules if I can get away with not following the rules? Okay, so one thing that, that Burke brings up that I think is relevant for our current political context is this idea of a social contract and the sorts of rights that you might have if you were just in what's called the state of nature, not living in society, versus the sort of rights that you, would, that you have if you join a community. And in our political context right now, it's, it seems like there, there are groups of people who want to have it both ways. They want to have all the rights that they would have if they were living in the state of nature, like in a pre-civil condition. But then they also want all the rights and benefits of living in society. Now, Burke doesn't think that you can have both. So I just want to read this, this paragraph because I, I really enjoyed it. One of the first motives to civil society and which becomes one of its fundamental rules is that no man 
should be judge in his own cause. By this, each person has at once divested himself of the first fundamental right of uncovenanted man, that is, to judge for himself and to assert his own cause. So if you don't live inside a society, then you're your own judge of whether what you did was right or wrong. Nobody else can judge you. Yeah. Um, because there are no there are no laws and there's there's nobody else that holds authority over you. But when you enter society or a community, you you have to give up that right. Otherwise, there is no community. Because a community needs rules to function. So he abdicates all rights to be his own governor. He inclusively, in a great measure, abandons the right of self-defense, the first law of nature. Men cannot enjoy the rights of an uncivil and a civil state together. That he may obtain justice, he gives up his right of determining what is in point the most essential to him. That he may secure some liberty, he makes a surrender and trust of the whole of it. So there are some political movements in the United States right now that call themselves conservatives. Mm -hmm. But from Burke's point of view, uh, deeply misunderstand what it is to be a conservative and what it is to enter civil society. Donald Trump, um, he's not a conservative in Burke's sense. This is not a man who has shown a deep respect for our social, cultural, you know, institutions and practices. This is somebody who wants to be in society and be afforded all the benefits that are given to us in society, but still retain his ability to literally appoint his own, like to be his own judge. Yeah, and there are people that want to retain the right of self-defense, which is our, you know, our natural right, mm -hmm. pre-social right. But when you enter society, you give that right up to the state on Burke's view. So imagine Burke isn't saying that if somebody comes and tries to kill you, you can't fight back. Yeah, what he's saying is that you pay for a police force and you don't go, you don't become a vigilante and enforce the laws yourself and enforce, and if somebody slights you, you don't handle it yourself if somebody breaks a contract with you or steals something from you you go to the police force you go through the judicial system and that's what different that's, that's the difference between civil society and just a bunch of people in a state of war with each other in the state of nature nice i think a lot about positive and negative liberties we'll say yeah part of positive liberties means that you have a wide range of options available to you yeah. negative um liberties means that uh, if you have strong negative liberties, it means that nobody is infringing upon you right now. Nobody's intervening upon you in a way that constrains you. So if you're living on a deserted island, you have pretty much perfect negative liberty. Nobody is there infringing upon you, intervening upon you. Yeah, it's often negative liberties are often thought in terms of uh, non-interference. People can't people can't mess with you. You can do whatever. Be like, I do what I want. See. Yeah, <laughs> but you can't do very much on the island. Maybe you can crack open some coconuts if you're capable of that. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know how to. So my positive liberties would be very constrained. And it's kind of like, I want some positive liberties. So I go into society and that means that I give up some negative liberties. Yeah, there are certain uh, <laughs> kinds of goods that we can only acquire in civil society. For example, a higher education or just the assurance that no one's going to steal my corn crops when I plant them. Yeah. Because there's a police force, art, culture, all this stuff are things that I gain by entering civil society that I, I don't 
have access to if I live outside of society. Why don't we read this next passage, parts of it. Um, this is a, an argument about how, partly, like how we can know what policies we should enact and what things we should change and what things we should keep. But it also is an argument about um, whether democracy is uh, the best form of government. So he says, the science of constructing a commonwealth or renovating it or reforming it is like any other experimental science, not to be taught a priori. So we can't just sit in our armchairs and figure out what the best policies are. Right. We need to do trial and error. No, so nor is it a short experience that can instruct us in that practical science because the real effects of moral causes are not always immediate, but that which in the first instance is prejudicial may be excellent in its remoter operation and its excellence may arise even from the ill effects it produces in the beginning. So we could have a policy that in the very beginning looks really good, but it's downstream effects, or as I talked about earlier, it's interactive effects with other eco, you know, other institutional ecosystems could create um, really bad effects. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the re reverse also happens. Yeah, I mean, I think that anybody listening to this podcast should feel the importance of Burke's insights. Like you, you might have, every time I describe Burke to somebody, especially if they're progressive, like most of my friends are, they think like, you know, why would I listen to a conservative? But then you kind of point out the insights that this guy had and some of the, the implications of it and, and the ways that his lessons have manifested themselves in, in their own lives. And you see like, oh yeah, there, there's, there's something to his pessimism about our ability to come up with these answers just from the armchair or just by, by doing a little bit of investigation. Let me just circle back to this idea that implementing policy requires a lot of experience. In fact, more experience than one person can acquire in a lifetime, right? This he also uses uses this as an argument against popular sovereignty and the idea that anybody can run for a position in government. What you need are the most wise people and the people who have the the proper training for government to go into government. Because if you just let you know Joe Schmo or Joe Plummer. Yeah. Uh, run for office, well, he doesn't have the experience or the education to um, to make the sorts of policy, uh, informed policy decisions that you'd want from somebody in office. So we hear uh, echoes of Plato. Hmm. Yeah. Here's one quote in particular that I think is important to look at. Um, he's talking about the English. They look upon the legal hereditary succession of their crown as among their rights, not as among their wrongs, as a benefit, not as a grievance, as a security for their liberty, not as a badge of servitude. They look upon the frame of their commonwealth such as it stands to be of inestimable value. And they conceive of the undisturbed succession of the crown to be a pledge of the stability and perpetuity of all the other members of our constitution. So the yeah, this hereditary rule that the whole institution of government is to protect our rights and it's to preserve the kind of stability that we need and that we are not going to have if we let Joe Plummer run for office. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing that's really interesting here 
and that's uh, very convenient is, you know, Burke is advocating for a hierarchical society. He, yeah. he thinks there are natural hierarchies in society. Um, and this is his argument for it. And we can contrast that with some elements, like the Jeffersonian element of the founders, not every founder um, held these views. But he thinks, yes, like certain social classes have accumulated wisdom and in part because of the way they're brought up and the environment and the, and the sort of education that they get. And, you know, of course, like, you know, back then it's true, like the, the moneyed noble classes, the, the hereditary wealth, they were the ones that, that got the formal educations. And so, you know, in his defense, you might say, well, under those conditions, we, it's true. If we just hold like the general premise, like we want the, the most educated people to be uh, the ones that govern, right? The most educated and the most virtuous to be the ones that govern. Well, if at that point, it's only the people with hereditary wealth that are given the education, then it follows that they should be the ones that govern. But of course, you know, this is like one of the reasons why, you know, people have advocated the democratization of education yeah. is well, if it's true that we want the most educated people to govern, you know, and the most virtuous, then if everybody gets an education, then everybody has an opportunity to govern. And the, the premise is still is still uh, valid. Thinking, so I want to connect that directly to the load-bearing wall thing. What One thing that's a load-bearing wall is that we want the most educated people to govern. And if you hold everything fixed and just get rid of the the hierarchies, where the hereditary rulers are the ones in charge, then you're going to end up with people who aren't qualified to govern. So you have to figure out what that is doing. You have to figure out what weight hereditary rule is actually holding up in this house before you just smash it down. But then once you realize that you can smash it down, you can, I don't know what you do. You, you could, you could create like, like, like sort of a beam that can hold the house up without this whole wall and the beam is education. So by yeah, so I think I, I like that. So, one thing like that Burke might say like, uh, yeah. is that, well, first you can't just have democratize um, public office until you democratize education first. Yeah. Right. So you can change the institution, but you can't like just snap, snap of fingers, right? Yeah. You need to introduce democratized uh, access to education. Yeah. And That's have like a generation go through that education. Yeah. I think it makes sense. Like you'd want to create, you want to put up the support beam before you smashed on your wall. Yeah. So um, this is actually something that's uh, probably unpopular for me to say, sure. but there's been a huge push in the, in for the last what, 20, 30 years to democratize um, university education mm. to get as many people through the door as possible. But, you know, as someone who teaches at university, you know, and, and you know this too, there are a lot of students that come into the university that just are not ready for university level work. Um, and so what they've done is they've opened the doors to the university, but they haven't considered the interactive effects of just allowing, a, just, just making it so people can get a loan to go, doesn't mean that they have the skills to succeed there, right? Yeah. And so, you need to look at it from the point of view of an interrelated ecosystem, right? You need better uh, primary and secondary education before you just 
open the doors wide to universities. Maybe what I'm saying is unpopular to some people, but from my experience, you're just setting students up for failure. If you give them loans to go to university, but they haven't had the quality of education to succeed at university, this is just compounding uh, the badness of their educational experience. Yeah, there's something, something, yeah. So, and I can see why people wouldn't wouldn't like to hear that because it seems like what you're doing is defending a natural hierarchy, but you're not. What you're doing is saying that in order to make sure that they have an opportunity to succeed, you don't simply let people into the universities. You have to give them the preparation first. It yeah. might be worth thinking of, like, so, I don't know, one thing I do when I'm teaching is that there's all these tips that people get when they come up from families who have multi-gener, like, you know, many generations have gone to universities. And I try to give out those tips as much as I can. So I, you know, I'll, I'll during lectures, I'll tell my students, like, here's how you talk to your teacher to, if you think that you were graded unfairly, here's how you can effectively use office hours for networking purposes. All these kinds of things that, that you might not know if your parents didn't go to college. It's kind of an aside, but I do think it's important just to mention, because I'm sure that, that there's things that, that you're doing too. Yeah, I don't just leave them in the dust. I do everything I can to help them out, um, you know, but it's hard to make up for 12 years of poor education yeah. in one philosophy class. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> All right, so why don't we just sum up what we've, we've talked about. I'm gonna go back to this load-bearing wall thing because I absolutely love it. Okay. You're working on a house or you're working on your society. You gotta figure out which things are doing work. And you don't wanna just haphazardly knock stuff down. You can't figure out which societal institutions are doing important work just from the armchair. And you can't do it simply by looking at whether they have auspicious beginnings, because sometimes the beginnings of institutions end up having really bad endings. And sometimes institutions that look really bad in the beginning end up having really good endings. So the kind of wisdom that you need to be able to figure out whether a social institution is, is load-bearing or not is the wisdom that can only happen through the combined experience of generations. And I think that's the basis for Burke's pessimism about our ability to just reason our way towards seeing which things need to be changed very quickly. And also his pessimism about the move to quickly change social institutions, including hereditary rule. Um, that's a great summary. I just want to add just a very quick thing. I think the, the right way to read Burke is not as someone who fetishizes the past, but as someone who is just cautious about change. Yeah, I like that a lot. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. And uh, next episode, we're going to pick up Burke one last time. We'll see you next time. Take care. Bye.